The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry with Joe McGill. Good morning, good morning, how are you this morning? I'm Joe McGill and you're listening to the Saturday Supplement and I hope I find you well wherever you are listening to us around the world on RadioKerry.ie or on the Radio Kerry app or on the traditional wireless 96 to 98 FM. And a very special hello to all the owners Skull crowd I met last Sunday evening in Sneem in Rhinies. Uh, we had a great evening there and uh, congratulations to Marie Connell and her now husband Giles Hoffman and all the Hoffmans as well. Now we have a very busy programme so I better get to it. We're going to hear uh, more episodes of our documentary series I produced with Connie Broderick on the Lighthouses of Kerry and we're going to feature today in Ishtirukt what a wonderful lighthouse that is and uh, Bull Rock Lighthouse now technically that's a Cork Lighthouse but it's off our Kerry coast and we'll also hear from Dr. Colm Kinney, Professor Emeritus of uh, Dublin City University, who gifted three drawings to the National Gallery, which he acquired in England during research for his recently published Kinmare History and Survival. And what a wonderful publication is that is, and we are going to talk a lot about it on uh, this programme this morning. Now, like I mentioned, Connie Broderick and I have produced a six-part, 22-minute documentary series called Lighthouses of Kerry, where you will journey around the Kerry coast and visit some of the county's favourite lighthouses and find out about their history, the people behind them, and the function they served. And the final two episodes of the series are going to be played for you this morning. So we're going to start off with Bull Rock Lighthouse. This documentary was produced by Connie Broderick and Joe McGill. It was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. at the very outer edge of Kenmare Bay. I'm looking straight over uh, southeast to Dursey Island and people who are familiar with the Bear Peninsula will associate Dursey and beyond with the uh, the cow and the bull rock and also the calf. Uh, this is the bull rock. It's about 300 feet high so you know it's about half the height of the The magnificent bull rock is situated off the entrance to Kenmare River. Five and a half miles from the mainland and two and a half miles from the nearest point of Dursey Island. The largest of three rocky islands called the Bull, the Cow and the Calf, the Bull Rock is notable for the natural tunnel running right through it and the lighthouse perched up on the rocks 91 metres above sea level. As part of our series on lighthouses, I accompanied ecologist and wildlife guide Vinnie Highland on a tour of this remote corner of Ireland to find out more about Bull Rock and its lighthouse. It's about half the height of, uh, you know, the Skelligs, a little bit less than ha- half the height of the Skelligs. And, uh, I mean, it's hard to believe that, you know, it's it's well over 100 years since, you know, the lighthouse men carved out those steps and carved out the paths and the various, put, put the, you know, the various bu- buildings in situ, um, more or less by hand, you know. I mean, like, like it was all done with manual labour at that stage. And um, we're not too sure, but uh, is this 
uh, rock, the only rock in Europe that actually has um, a tunnel right through it, a sea, you know, a sea arch yeah. that you can go all the way through. You can see it here just in front of us. And um, we just put that out there to see because yeah. we, don't, we don't actually know. I mean, I tried to Google it, but sure, that's no good sometimes, you know. It's probably about maybe 25 foot high, I guess. And... Uh, it's about maybe 30, 35 foot wide, so you can you can bring a, a fair sized vessel through through it. And um, I mean, if you compare just even just the way the rock is compared to the skelligs, if you look at the skelligs, the rocks are tilted in the skelligs, and they're at a slope or or, or an angle down, so from the top down. Uh, whereas here, the uh, the rocks have been turned right up to a 90 degree angle, and hence the actual tunnel probably got formed with that because the, the actual rocks started to fall down into the sea. I was here actually. I stayed here uh, in January uh, many you years ago. Here, yeah. I did, yeah, on the on the lighthouse. Uh, with thanks to the commissioners of Irish Lights, I was doing a film on uh, Kenmare Bay. It's my first kind of uh, full feature on marine life of Kenmare Bay, and I always wanted to come out uh, in the depths of winter to see whether there are any gannets on it and to film that. And actually, there were none. Uh, they'd all disappeared, and um, I actually witnessed a huge swell coming right through this uh, sea arch here, through the through the tunnel which uh, splashed all the way up onto the ce- ceiling so the noise of it was just like roaring rah, you know it was brilliant because <laughs> we're here and it's just lovely and beautiful and calm and the sun is shining but I'd imagine the ferocity which the waves hit this is frightening it's absolutely fr- frightening and I mean I mean, if you read about the bull um, it's possible that the, re- the one of the reasons maybe that it got, got its name is because some of those um, uh, swells when they shoot up through cracks in the rock they actually ma- make a sound so it, it perhaps maybe makes the sound of a bull but actually I like to think of the idea that when you go over to the cow the next rock here on the other side of the southern side of the cow there's um, an elephant's head with a trunk that goes down into the sea which we'll see and um, perhaps maybe the you know the the calf the cow and the bull were named after elephants in the spring of 1846 a request was made to the ballast board that lighthouses be established on bull rock galley head and on the Foz Rocks off the Blasket Islands. Galleyhead was approved, but the Bull and Foz Rocks were postponed, and ultimately the Calf Rock off the tip of Dorsey Island was chosen instead as the site of the lighthouse. The tower was completed on the Calf by autumn 1864, and the lantern, optic and revolving machinery were added the following year. Shore dwellings for the keepers and their families were built on the mainland at the south end of Dorsey Sound. The light was established on the 30th of June, 1866. Michael Donnelly is a local historian and grew up in the area. Michael, tell us your own story. You're from this area, born and bred. You would have been lucky out of this all your life. I would indeed, and um, we would always, when we'd be saving hay as youngsters, uh, people used to say that uh, if you heard the bull rock sounding, that it wasn't very good weather for saving hay. So, you know, they, they use even in foggy weather, it was sounding um, almost on a regular basis, and yeah. in wet summers, you'd be listening to it fairly regularly. It had its own song, really, so, and, you know, you described that the, 
the, the local knowledge and the farmers would really be watching out for it. They would because at that time if there was any fog at all apparently the way it, it was set up was that uh, they would sound have this sound and uh, so it was always associated with misty foggy weather. Um, there's a lot of history in this in this rock in there with the bull, the cow and the calf in relation to their lighthouses and all that. Around 1860 there was a um, proposal to build a lighthouse out in that in this area and uh, there was a debate and a big discussion and uh, disagreement really because uh, some people wanted, said it should be on the, the bull and more people said it should be on the calf but uh, the powers that be eventually decided that um, they were going to build it on the calf. Now it was a huge task and it took a long time to build it and um, eventually it was open. A few years. The light on Calf Rock was a short-lived one. Just 15 years after it came into operation, it was destroyed in a storm. Michael Donnelly and Richard Forn described the destruction and loss of life on Calf Island. A few years after it opened, they somebody on shore uh, misinterpreted as it happened the signal from the, the lighthouse and thought that they were in trouble out there. And uh, they launched a boat and uh, they went out and by the time they discovered that it was a mistake, the a wave came and uh, the six people on board that boat were all killed. It was an awful tragedy. A huge tragedy. And then a number of years later, the one night, the um, one of the... Um, the, the keepers was up on the top deck of it and uh, but he decided to go downstairs and, and luckily for him that he did because while he was down uh, the top of it was actually washed away oh. and uh, it was a huge storm and uh, the staff had got shelter because they had uh, cut out of the rock there their little cabins really and they were very fortunate that they were able to go into those because they were out there for around 10 days the whole tower was just washed into the sea. They were down the base of the tower and they survived. There were three keepers and three walking on the rock, doing some repair walking. And um, the British Navy came over trying to get them off and they were around for a fortnight trying to get near them. They couldn't. And eventually then um, a cork rode out from the Jersey Island. And because the cork was able to move the cork fairly well, you know, they were able to get in close enough to get the guys on onto the boat. So that lighthouse was then abandoned, you know, they didn't, they didn't build that on any wall, it was too dangerous. <laughs> so they then went down and built the, the lighthouse on the Bull Rock, which was up higher and, you know, would, and that lighthouse is still there, of course. A memorial to the six men and their heroic rescuers was unveiled on the mainland on Dorsey Sound, in sight of the Calf Rock in 2013. The plaque commemorates the epic rescue of six men who were marooned on the Calf Rock Lighthouse for 12 days by a severe storm in November 1881. After several failed attempts to rescue the men by British gunboats Seahorse and Amelia, seven brave fishermen set out for Dursey Island in a rowboat in an all-out bid to save the men. Under Captain Michael O'Shea, they battled high winds and raging seas to bring all the men to safety. Captain O'Shea and his crew were later honoured for their bravery and seamanship at a ceremony in London. The rescued men were Thomas Fortune, John Young, John Harrington, John Byrne, Mick Kelly, William Lowney. The brave rescuers were Captain Michael O'Shea and his son Michael, Daniel Healy and his son Dennis Tay Dudley, Darby Jaro Sullivan and Bat Lynch. 
Incidentally, with the fastnet being constructed of the same material, it was hurriedly decided that another fastnet needed to be constructed before it suffered the same fate. But there were 20 years on that calf wall, and it was a steel structure. And the same, the same structure was on the fastnet initially, steel structure. So they got concerned about that, then of course that went so they decided they'd build a new lighters in the fastness. And that was an engineering sheet in itself because there wasn't much room there of course. And and they wanted a fairly big base down on the water, so they, they were over Welsh miners and they cut the base out for them. And then they got granite and corn wall and they they cut each stone individually. Each stone. And each stone was, was dovetailed in to the next one and and they built it over there then they brought it back and they built it again in Rock Island then they dismantled it again and then they brought a stone out to the fastness and the British ship especially called the army and uh, she brought out the stones for them and, and they built it there were three years building it and and there were there were um, up to 20 men living on the rock inside in a, uh, what they call a hut which was a steel, steel structure and there was a guy with a cabinet, he was from Wichita. And he stayed on there other than two weeks every year to come off it for the three years of the construction of it. And, and, and he got sick in the end before it was finished and he was taken, he was taken off and he died from a few weeks afterwards. But they, they did a marvellous job, it was, it was an engineering feat, as I say, to do it, you know. They got up every morning, at, at, of course, TB was ramping that in, you know, that was 1901, 2 and 3, they were at that. And, um, and there were four fires keeping the bed together because there was nothing else they could do well for this accommodation wasn't different so they got up every morning at 6 o'clock they washed the whole place up with J.S. Flood washed themselves in J.S. Flood and there was no disease or you know, sickness there and they continued on with their work until, until, until it was done completely yeah. and uh, there's a quick man that you know on the fastest the construction because it was a marvellous building it's just standing there just perfect the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. With calf rock damaged beyond repair, a temporary light was erected at the end of Dorsey Island in 1881 as a replacement. The light was put into operation on February 1882. This lasted for eight years until the new light was exhibited on Bull Rock. They decided that um, the, you know, a more permanent structure was needed and, uh, and a more, I suppose, uh, stable structure and they decided that uh, the right place for that would be on the, um, the, the Bull Rock. The, it was a huge undertaking on the Bull Rock because it was very, very high, very difficult to get to and, uh, in fact, when they went out there originally around the 1880s, I think it was, that uh, they carried people who had experience of mining out there and uh, they people that would have worked in copper mines and things like that because both the equipment and the skill that they would have they felt that that was appropriate for the work that was to be done out there but um, 300 steps had to be carved out of the the rocks and something like 16,000 cubic metres or cubic yards at that time of uh, stone was had to be removed in order to uh, get a foundation that was satisfactory for the the building of the lighthouse on the, the
A total of 15,957 cubic yards of hard rock were excavated. Over 300 steps had to be cut out of the side of the rock to gain access from the boat landing to the site for the tower. The station consisted of an octagonal lighthouse tower, dwellings for the keepers, an oil gas works to supply gas for the burners and the optic, and an explosive fog signal, together with steps, boat landings, derricks and hoists. The work was of an enormous scale. The station was completed in 1888, and on the 1st of January 1889, Bullrock's light and fog signal were established. Actually, we're looking at the uh, the old gas works building, and this was a place where they manufactured gas to um, uh, to run the light, to light the light. At one stage in its history, the building itself. I just love what they did with the you know, the window frames, the window surrounds. You know, they put in a kind of a red brick, a baked red brick. So, from um, uh, you know, just an aesthetic perspective, it's quite a beautiful building. It's, it's very big. How did, how did that operate? Well, it's amazing insofar as is that um, they were able to um, uh, uh, take uh, get gas off coke and um, pipe it then up to the, uh, to the main light. And uh, they would have had to derrick. You can see there's a, a fabulous big stone structure that actually has a derrick crane. So they would have actually lifted stuff off boats and ve- vessels to bring in supplies and things like that. Uh, go- going back many, many years ago. The first major alteration to Bull was the replacement of the explosive fog signal by a siren. The changeover took place on 1st of October 1902. The next alteration was on the 28th of June 1910, when the light was converted from oil gas to vaporised paraffin, causing the candle power to be greatly increased, still using the same optic. The light was converted to electric power in 1974, and from the 25th of April 1978, the light was exhibited in poor daylight visibility. Also in the 70s, conditions for the keepers had changed with technology. Dangerous boat trips were replaced with short helicopter journeys on and off the rock. And while the only contact with the mainland was by phone or radio, keepers had their own living quarters with many modern conveniences, including central heating and a television. A far cry from the keepers who manned the bull rock in 1889, whose main companionship was the wildlife that foraged in these rich feeding grounds. During my trip to the lighthouse, I saw a dazzling array of seabirds, including gannets, that called the rock and the surrounding seas home. I'm blown away by this. I'm ju- we're just after arriving here. It just comes out of nowhere. It's spectacular. On one side, what I'm noticing is they're, they're gannets, I presume. They're all on one side. Uh, yeah, well... I mean, the main gannetry is to the right-hand side, so that's the side that faces the Skelligs, uh, for anybody listening, as I can see the Skelligs over to uh, the west here. On the left-hand side, the reason that they um, haven't really colonised there is because uh, the lighthouse uh, was manned, really, all the way up until um, the 80s and into the 90s, before it was automated. Um, And so, gannets, as is their nature as a wild bird, they're not going to go near where humans are. Um, But what you will notice that since they actually automated the light, lighthouse um, and there's nobody there now full time. The gannets actually have been making a presence uh, on the southern side so when we go around to see the lighthouse you'll actually see a new gannetry there. There's no inhabitants here ever but I wonder would the monks have chosen some place like this as well? Would it have been like the Skelligs in that in that way? Uh, the real issue here is accessibility so um, this rock is impossible um, you know to get onto really. I mean it's, it's, it's calm here calm enough 
But having said that, the currents around here, and I've dived here many times, the currents around here are ferocious. So, I mean, you could you could end up in a dive where you'd actually be drift diving from here and you'd end up somewhere out there in the middle in a matter of maybe two or three minutes. Um, so it's very dangerous. Um, so you have to only dive here on slack tides when it's really, really, really calm. So, Vinny, I'll let you go now. You're, you're going to do something unusual now. What are you going to go at? I'm just going to do what I do normally is get in the water <laughs> and snorkel. I'm going to snorkel through, through the arch. I haven't done it in years. And I'm just going to have a look and see if I can collect some marine life, particularly um, some uh, white sea urchins. Uh, and I'll tell you what I see as well. There's pr- probably some big rass here and pollock and stuff. So I'll give it a go and see how I see on the other side. Yeah? We'll see you on the other side, Vinny. As Vinny dived into the deep sea waters below, I prepared to go through the narrow passageway that cuts through the rock known locally as the entrance to the underworld. Now we're going through the archway of Bull Rock. Right underneath, it's an amazing uh, cauldron, like a, like a, ha- a hallway going into a, a, another world. The walls are green with the, uh, the algae or the moss. And then you can be out again on the other side and it's just a, you're met with an amazing amount of light and sound and gannets and nature and everything. It's just amazing coming right through it, going under the heart of uh, Bull Rock. That was, that was an amazing experience. Now you can be out the other side and it's actually the rock kind of changes into the white, a lot of the gannet droppings and all that. But it's amazing, amazing to see. Unbelievable. And on the other side now we actually see the uh, the lighthouse. Beautiful looking lighthouse, white on top of the the rock and then the gannets are going on all around. Amazing. Well, Vinny, you're just out of the water. Yeah. What did you see down there? Uh, very eerie. It's amazing going through that tunnel. It's not particularly deep, but uh, I saw animals called siphonophores. So these are kind of uh, communities of individual organisms all uh, joined together in a chain. So they're kind of like jellyfish, but they're not. Uh, lots of uh, starfish, walls and walls of uh, these uh, creatures called dead men's fingers. And... Uh, then as I, I got down to the bottom which was at about maybe 30 feet and lots of lots of big wrasse and very large pollock just uh, an incredible underwater uh, seascape what's the visibility like Terry? like the walls look very green so I'd imagine it's like blue is it or what? crystal clear so yeah. it's a greeny blue turquoise almost you know but it's crystal clear down down to the bottom because you have no sediment here to get whipped up like you have back in the coast inshore like where where else would you get it? It's it's the best in the world. Yeah. So you were swimming in the belly of the bull today. I was swimming in the belly of the bull. In fact, um, that is known, I believe, as as the gateway to the underworld. So I went from reality into unreality, and I'm back again now here. We can really see the lighthouse now, can't we? Yeah, the lighthouse. Um, the lighthouse has seen major changes over the past forty years. The fog signal was discontinued in 1989. And a mere two years later, the light was automated, meaning the end of keepers occupying the rock after 100 years of service. As part of the automation process, the original lantern and optic were replaced by a much smaller lantern and lamps, giving a high-intensity light with low power consumption. The station was placed in the care of an attendant, the aids to navigation being monitored via telemetry link with Irish lights at Dunleary. 
In May 1998, exhibition of the light during reduced daylight visibility was discontinued. At the turn of the century, the station was converted to solar power and the original lantern was replaced by an electric lantern with a discharge lamp powered by solar panels and a battery. As I sat in the boat looking up at the lighthouse, I thought about the advancements in technology that this rock in the Atlantic had seen and how it remains a testament to the skill and dedication of those involved in its construction and lifesaver to those at sea. Yeah, the lighthouse, um, as you can see, is quite prominent to the southern side. And um, at one uh, stage in its history, uh, not up until recently, actually, uh, part of that light was occluded from parts of the mainland on the Balanskelic side and also um, on the Kumakishta Darianan side. But then what they did was, and you'll actually just see it, there's a white, uh, just to the right-hand side and up, there's a white kind of... Uh, pole and that actually has a new light on it so when they lifted it up it's now an LED light and that can be seen from 360 degrees around you know yeah. uh, but you, you can also see that it's not painted yeah. anymore yeah. that's because there's nobody there you know I suppose um, you know when, when you think of it in a modern co- context the building up on top uh, was the kind of the tea room the hut for the guys who came out when uh, the lighthouse wasn't uh, manned they'd come out with maintenance crews and they still do that but actually the uh, the main light the main lantern now is not used and they've replaced the main light with uh, one of these kind of LED lights on a pole which is a very very bright flashing light it's spectacular though it's isn't gorgeous, it gorgeous absolutely yeah. beautiful Yeah, that's another episode, Lighthouses of Kerry, Bull Rock, and I want to thank all the contributors who featured on this episode. We're going to hear another episode in the second hour, and that's going to be Inish Tirukt. Now, after the break, we're going to be talking to Dr. Colm Kinney, author of Kinmare History and Survival. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now, so I hope you're enjoying the programme so far. Dr. Colm Kinney, Professor Emeritus of Dublin City University, recently gifted three drawings to the National Gallery, which he acquired in England during research for his book, Kinmare History and Survival. And I caught up with him during the week to talk about this book and the drawings. Colm, thanks a million for uh, agreeing to do this. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, I suppose, first of all, in order to understand the context of the book, we kind of have to go pre-famine, don't we? And tell us, I suppose, what was Kinmare like then? Kinmare hardly existed before the famine. There is a notion that Kinmare was founded by the original William Petty back in the 1600s when he came over with Cromwell. But that's actually wrong. It was another Petty, a Petty descendant, Lord Lansdowne, who in the late 1700s only got the idea uh, had a spot then known as Nadine uh, and still known as Nadine in Irish uh, to, to create a town he, he decided to lay it out much as you see it now that central triangle in, in Kenmare of the main street which was then Henry Street, William Street and, and the other road at the end of the triangle and he, he put that in place as a plan uh, and it gradually grew in the first years of the 1800s and was only taking off really thanks to Catholic traders, the Catholic middle class that was growing up and opening shops but that was only taking off when the famine struck 
So it was a real blow for Ken Mayer at that stage. But uh, it was it was a, an idea was to build a town in that area where there hadn't really been a significant town before. And who ruled the land before we're talking about Petty and the Landstones? Who who was there before that? Well, of course, this was Great O'Sullivan territory. And I don't know whether it was coincidence that we find Father John O'Sullivan being sent there as parish priest, whether the bishop thought in the back of his mind somewhere, you know, this was payback time somehow. But the O'Sullivan and the O'Sullivan Bear... Uh, on one side, the O'Sullivan Moor, and the other had owned all of that era, area. Uh, and it was taken away from them in the great Cromwellian and post Cromwellian land settlements and largely given to the Petties uh, and, and who became the Lansdowns, married into the Fitzmorrises. They owned enormous tracts of Kerry, um, and indeed the, the, the Lansdowns are one of the richest landlord families in Ireland and had their wonderful estate in England too, in Wiltshire. Uh, and uh, you know the way victors get to write history the history that got written about Ken Mayer around that time was basically a story of civilising English influences on the barbaric Irish uh, and both um, uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay that very famous English historian and another great English historian of the 1800s called Froude wrote a version of it that flattered the English and oddly enough, it was Oscar Wilde in a review of Fruid's book that probably most effectively tore apart uh, their self-gratifying uh, version of the story. Uh, and in my book, I've tried to put the record a little right and to recall the great history of that part of Kerry long before the Lansdowns owned it. Um, it was a cultured area uh, with uh, which there are now many ruins remaining, but it was also a great trading area. It had a very good trade with Spain directly across the ocean. Um, the Spanish taking fish, salting them locally in salting sheds, taking them back to Spain, bringing from Spain leather and wine that was traded there uh, on both sides of Kenmare Bay. So a great and interesting history there, but one that had been forgotten and overwritten. And I'm very glad that I had the opportunity in my book on Kenmare history and survival uh, to put that record right. Yeah, that's so important. Um, the geographical uh, positioning of the town, I suppose, that's why it's important you mention it there. It's the sea, really, I presume. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it was important. He, they wanted to try and build a market town. I think that was the idea behind the town being built up. But there wasn't much of a centre there. I mean, it was an entirely rural area. And so uh, as development came in the 19th century, it was essential, uh, you know, that they would have some kind of a centre of settlement and education and um, that was important too when Father O'Sullivan came in 1839 one of his jobs was to build schools create a convent get the nuns in uh, and further the education of the Catholic people who had been neglected for so long uh, and they achieved great things in that period when he was there he created at least 13 Schools when he was parish priest to Kenmare between 1839 and 74. And of course, the nuns came. The Sisters of St. Clare set up their very influential convent. And it's only in the past year that the last of them have departed from Kenmare, a sign of changing times. And I know we're very impatient nowadays with the Catholic Church, but at that stage, there were a lot of very dedicated people, nuns and priests, whose work to help to educate people, help to drag and oppress people up from incredible poverty and enable them to function and to put in place the building blocks, including the building blocks of trade, 
in Kenmare that was so important that made Kenmare into a thriving town. Mm-hmm. You concentrate on the, the, the famine here and you talk about uh, Father O'Sullivan. What effects, I suppose, uh, d- d- describe, I suppose, the devastating effects the famine had first off and then how the, work, uh, the workhouse came to be there? I will, but let me just, if I may, very briefly say I love a good story and the reason I concentrate on the famine is because I found two great repositories of information that have still to be mined uh, apart from my book. I think there's very little use made of them. O'Sullivan left journals and books that are called diaries, but they're a mixture of memoir and uh, description and diary. And these are in the um, diocesan uh, library in the Bishop's House in Killarney. And I got access to these. And they tell a terrific story of the period. And there's still an enormous amount of information in them for anybody interested in social and economic history of the time. And also, the records of Kenmare Poorhouse survived somehow. Uh, they were found by a man called Danny Moriarty through his efforts, a local historian, and those of Liam Cousins in Kenmare some time ago in the attic, I believe, of the workhouse in Dingo. And they were rescued, and they're now in the Tralee County Library. And again, even though I was writing this book partly in the time of COVID, uh, the Tralee County Librarian and Archivist proved very helpful to me and was able to get me a great deal of what I wanted. And these were two fantastic sources on what was happening in Kenmare at that time, at that time of great poverty when the workhouse couldn't cope. And there are graphic descriptions of starving people uh, in the streets of Kenmare falling down dead and of the funerals being brought through Kenmare to the old cemetery. And I've used many of these in the book. And of Father O'Sullivan himself being so driven to despair by what he was encountering every day that he lay down by the stream behind his house uh, here in Kenmare and uh, prayed to God that God would take him. Um, The death toll was enormous uh, and some of the stories are heartbreaking. People being put out of the workhouse for for technical reasons essentially and indeed I um, inscribed my book and dedicated it in memory of Catherine Connolly a little girl, as he thought, asleep on the road, as one witness later told uh, a coroner. But she was dead, and Catherine, with her brothers Dan, John and Michael, died of starvation in the open air near Kenmay Bay on the night of the 30th to the 31st of December, 1847, New Year's Eve. They had been put out, never made it home, died of starvation. These are stories we should not forget. It's not a question of wallowing, I think, in misery. It's a question of remembering where we came from. Now, the workhouse itself was demolished in the 20s and 30s. People didn't want memories of these things. But I was delighted to find a photograph, an old Lawrence photograph in the National Library of Kenmare, taken about 1890 from across the bay. And in one corner of that, the workhouse is clearly visible. And because these great glass negatives that were used for photography then are of a quality equaled only by digital photography today. You can hone right in on these details. And I was able to enlarge it and I've used the image in the book. Uh, the book has a lot of images, which I was very glad to find, uh, and I think which helped to tell the story. Colm Kinney there, and we're going to hear more from him after this break. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now let's return to that interview I did with Dr. Colm Kinney, author of Kinmare History and Survival. 
Um, I, I read uh, Jerry Mulvell's book on the Irish famine as well, and it's, it's just devastating when you actually hear the stories. And it's that, that's what you know, hurts the most when you hear a person's name and you find out about their family and what they, they went through. But out of all this devastation, I suppose, heroes emerge as well. You know, people that went above and beyond. Um, you mentioned Father O'Sullivan. But the women play a role as well, you were telling me as well, um, before our interview. Yeah, they do indeed. There were, there were many powerful women. Uh, um, indeed, the original Cromwellian settler, um, William Petty, who was quite an enlightened man, he, he, he drew up the Downs survey and he, was, uh, he had great medical information. So he wasn't, you know, not all the Cromwellians were, I suppose, as bad as we think they were. But his wife was a great and strong woman who administered uh, the area too. Now, the women, uh, for their troubles, the most prominent women, uh, of course, got uh, a, fierce, a fierce amount of stick. Um, she was a viper, for example, the woman who ran a Protestant school uh, in Temple No near Kenmare, to which she invited poor Catholic children. Then there was the drunk of Amazonian prowess. This was the woman who excited a crowd of Catholics to resist proselytizers. But then there was the beautiful and saintly celibate woman who managed an educational and spiritual centre in Kenmare. Uh, and I include a, a chapter in the book about some of these women. And I was delighted to find in um, a bookshop in England when I was researching the book, three sketches of the area uh, by uh, Theresa Marable, who visited Kenmare in the 19th century. She was a daughter of the... Uh, paymaster in the Queen in Queen Victoria's household, and she came. And there are very, you know, we're always on the lookout for images of the images. A picture tells a, you know, paints a, uh, a wonderful picture. A thousand words can't equal it. There's one of these sketches shows two women from Kenmare on the road to Killarney. One of them with two little piglets on a lead, uh, which was a sign, I suppose, of owning some money when you can begin to own piglets. Um, and I, I put these images into the book but I've also given them to the National Gallery now and you can see them online since last week in the National Gallery's uh, catalogue um, and I think this was important because there are not many images of Kerry in the National uh, Gallery and to have these ones of women, there's an old woman of Ken Mayer, uh, and I think you know she speaks volumes about the women of that period the hardship, you can see it in her face looking back over her shoulder in the image, a backward glance at the survival uh, of people through such misery. And indeed, um, there's a wonderful woman, a, a former teacher from the Vera Peninsula, from Tua, says Stan McCabe Hickey, who helped me with this book at times. And she's looked at that uh, drawing by Marable and she says it, it reminds her of many women she knew in her youth even then. So again, th these bring to light the past. They enhance the story, I think. In a, in a very special way uh, and I'm glad to have had the opportunity to remember those people You mentioned there that it's important you know, this time is remembered and we remember it Can you go into a bit more detail of, of why why it's so important that we do remember um, uh, this devastating time? I think for one thing it's helped to create a certain mentality in Ireland um, of survival um, of knowing where we came from I don't think we've forgotten completely that or the terrible emigration that followed it, which has been written up by other uh, other um, authors about what happened from Kerry people going to um, the five points in New York, the terrible slum, 
which was the setting of Gangs of New York, that film by Martin Scorsese. Um, I think, you know, it's alive in our memory, this sense of dread of what can happen, and maybe to a certain guilt. But I think if we don't remember these things, if we don't remember how hard it was to get out of that, how much work went into it, and the generations who pulled us up by our bootstraps, we become cocky, uh, as we did, I think, during the Celtic Tiger. We shouldn't take things for granted. Uh, we should remember our roots, you know. And these are very much my roots, too. I mean, my granny came from Tralee. She was related to Father John O'Sullivan, this powerful parish priest in Kenmare. They shared an ancestor, his grandfather and my granny's great-great-grandfather was a man called Stephen Welsh from Dingle, a ship's captain and uh, he used to bring uh, he used to bring butter, believe it or not, from Kerry to Lisbon in Portugal and he'd come back with wine uh, uh, and other goods from Portugal. Uh, unfortunately for him, he was about to retire and decided he'd make one last trip and his ship went down on that trip and so did my unfortunate ancestor. But um, my granny had left me a handwritten, had left our, in our family a handwritten copy of a letter that Father O'Sullivan wrote uh, to the people of Kenmare about a great local proselytizer in Dromore, Dennis Mahoney, who owned Dromore Castle. And it had lain in a box, this letter, for decades. And I, I'd seen it once or twice, and it was only when I picked it up one last time a few years ago that I realized how interesting this might be. And this was the lead that led me to the story of Father O'Sullivan and the famine poor there. Um, so it's funny how small things, sometimes one thing leads to, leads to another. Uh, my granny also left a little family tree that has me related uh, many generations back to uh, O'Sullivan Bear, uh, who made the great survival march north. And I'm certainly not going to question that. I like the idea of being descended. I think we're all descended from in Ireland from at least one Gaelic chieftain, so O'Sullivan Bear can be mine. I don't know who's yours. I, <laughs> I can't go into that li- uh, live radio. <laughs> Dr. Cullum Kinney there, and we're going to hear more from him after the news at 10. And we're also going to hear another episode of Lighthouses of Kerry featuring Inish Tirith. So I'll join you in the next one. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Good morning, it's 10 o'clock, I'm Circa Burke. Concern has been raised over the government's tax credit scheme for renters. According to the Irish Examiner, only 10% have claimed the credit so far this year. Aoife Cairns reports... Between January and July 9th, 40,631 accessed the €500 Euro credit introduced in the budget to ease financial pressure for renters. It's estimated that at the moment in Ireland there are 400,000 people registered with the Residential Tenancies Board. That means only 10% availed of the government tax credit. The Irish Examiner reports that in response, Revenue will carry out an information campaign to find out why there's been such a low take-up. Earlier on this year, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar admitted there's anecdotal evidence to suggest some people are unable to avail of the rent credit as they're renting from landlords not registered with the RTB. The security allowance afforded to TDs and senators should be extended to councillors without delay. So says Senator Mary Siri Kearney following an attack on a councillor's home in Dublin this week. A rock with a note to stop supporting refugees was thrown through the window of Councillor Hugh Lewis's home. Senator Siri Kearney says there needs to be a sense of urgency in getting security funding for councillors. 
if there was any delays or any putting it off till September, actually the decision needs to be made now and that's what I'm calling for, to accelerate that decision because this week's occurrence is bound to uh, to, to maybe those who are thinking of running for election next year, uh, people who are thinking of coming into public life, we need them to have the security that they're going to be supported. The government needs to stop taking a piecemeal approach to the issue of staffing in the home care sector. Sipju says the government must seek comprehensive solutions to the recruitment and retention crisis. The health minister this week announced carers will be paid at least the national living wage. But Sipju sector organiser Pat Flannery says while he welcomes the funding, much more must be done. We're going to continue to highlight the issue. You know, the fundamental issue here is you know, if you're looking about, you know, if you're talking about quality home care, you, you need to be talking about quality jobs. And if you're operating a two-tier system, then you're likely going to end up with a, two, with a two-tier home care system. And that doesn't serve anybody well, most especially the service user. The government needs to play an active role in finding a solution to the current dispute involving retained firefighters. That's the view of independent TD for Galway East, Sean Canney, who says a serious overhaul of the services needs to be undertaken. Firefighters are set to take to the picket lines next week after they voted against recommendations by the Work Relations Commission to settle a dispute over pay and conditions. Deputy Kenny says it needs to become a more attractive proposition for potential employees. And there needs to be a complete overhaul of the entire system to make retained firefighter as a career, uh, to make it attractive for young people. And the problem we have at the moment is that we have a huge amount of uh, people who are exiting from the service and we are down numbers in the service. If we do not tackle it head on, we will have further uh, losses and then we will have a service that will not be able to operate. And finally for now, plans to convert a Killarney car showroom into a gym have been given the green light. Kerry County Council has granted permission for change of use from an existing commercial car sales unit into a gym at the former Bowler's Toyota Garage in Ballycashin. The car sales building has been vacant for some time, but the car repair garage is currently in operation to the rear of the vacant building. The plans also include the construction of a bicycle shelter at the unit. And the next news here on Radio Kerry is at 11. It's the summer of savings at Supervalue. Enjoy great offers like Supervalue Fresh Irish Housekeepers Cut, save 33%. Coca-Cola 10-pack cans, only €8. Brancola State Sauvignon Blanc, only €10. And money off vouchers every week on the app. For a summer of savings, it's got to be Supervalue. Enjoy alcohol responsibly. Radio Kerry Weather. A dull, wet and misty morning with outbreaks of rain. The rain will become patchier during the afternoon and evening with dry spells at times. Highest temperatures of 16 to 18 degrees in light to moderate southwesterly winds. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now, so we're into the second hour of the Saturday Supplement and I hope you're enjoying the programme. Later on, we are going to have another episode of Lighthouses of Kerry featuring Inish Tirukt. But now let's return to the interview I did with Colm Kinney, author of Kinmare History and Survival. And we mentioned Father O'Sullivan, who played a big role uh, during the famine in Kinmare. So I asked Colm about this man. 
just on Father O'Sullivan, I'd like to know a bit more about him because, you know, there were certain members of the Catholic Church that didn't do a lot during this time. And then you have priests like Father O'Sullivan. There was another one in Tralee that, you know, went above and beyond. And it's just heartbreaking when you hear about the, the, the despair he felt as well. Because, again, it's very hard for us to imagine, you know, what this must have been like. But kind of describe the things he did during that time. Well, I mean, his great achievement, he got himself to London twice, um, which is a tricky enough thing to do at that stage, you know, from, it was a long, hard journey. Uh, but he managed somehow or other, first of all, um, he, he got himself t- not once, but twice into a committee of very wealthy bankers, Rothschilds, very famous names indeed, and Rothschilds and others, uh, which had been set up they, for charitable purposes to send money for Ireland. And they generally didn't have allow people to come and address them personally but he managed to get in there two days in a row and made a very strong case for Ken Mayer and got help from them for, for Ken Mayer and by dint of his application he also got before a committee of the House of uh, Houses of Parliament in London and got to know Trevelyan, the famous Trevelyan, perhaps the most powerful civil servant in relation to Ireland at that time, Trevelyan's corn of course we know from the song um, then four green fields and all that. The fields of Atten Rye, yeah. The fields of Atten Rye, exactly. Mm-hmm. And he got to stay with Crevelyan in his own house one night. So he was clearly a formidable individual who was able to get things done. Uh, um, and at the same time, he had to keep good relations with Lansdowne, which he did. Now, you know, he, he endeared himself to the poor and he won the respect of most of the priests in Kerry. In fact, they wanted him to become. Uh, the next Bishop of Kerry uh, and they voted for him to become the next Bishop of Kerry and the other Bishops in Munster indeed were prepared to make him Bishop of Kerry but unfortunately he was regarded as a bit too outspoken I think there was a, this was at a time when Arch, when Cullen and McHale the most powerful uh, members of the hierarchy were trying to put a bit of order on the Catholic Church and a bit manners as they saw it on individual priests around the country who were too independent uh, and they wanted things to conform more to a set of kind of practices that they approved of and to end probably some of the looser practices that were happening at holy wells and in the stations in people's houses and he got on the wrong side of them when he went to represent the ailing Bishop of Kerry at the time uh, at a particular meeting of the hierarchy and they never forgave him so when the recommendation came that he become Bishop of Kerry uh, Colin marked on his letter or that was the end of that. It stood for rejected. And so the Vatican didn't appoint him. And Moriarty became uh, bishop in, in his place. And to be fair to Moriarty, at the funeral of um, Father O'Sullivan, Moriarty mentioned this fact that he had been, you know, he had been basically selected to be bishop of Kerry, but then prevented. There were controversies in his life of a political nature too. He didn't like the Fenians. And he does appear to have broken a confidence of some kind, if not a confidence in the confession, then one of one given to him outside a confessional, uh, when he told Dublin Castle about people plotting to have a Fenian, the Fenians plotting in the area. He felt it would be better for his people not to be led into uh, a uh, uprising that might lead to their, their deaths and to more destruction. Whether he was right or wrong, it didn't win him many friends. Uh, and some of the opinions condemned him for that afterwards. He also wasn't an out-and-out repealer. Uh, while he approved of Catholic emancipation, of course, he was a borderline repealer. He felt that what really mattered 
was the economic and social welfare of people more than more than how that shaped up as to whether or not Ireland remained in the United Kingdom or, or had its own parliament. He, he wasn't too pushed. So these things sometimes made him a controversial, controversial individual, rubbed some people up the wrong way, I suppose. Mm. Um, you mentioned the history and survival is mentioned in your, your, your title. How did Kinmere survive after the famine? It did well. Um, you know, it grew very rapidly after that. Now, many people continued to uh, emigrate. Um, and in some ways, there was a very unpleasant reality there. that The land was so subdivided that it simply couldn't continue viably to support the kind of population that it had. So one way out was uh, emigration. And, of course, Lansdowne and other land, landlords assisted migration. Uh, and there were mixed feelings uh, uh, about that too. But the infrastructure continued to grow. Um, Father Sullivan himself was responsible for the building of a fine church in Kenmare at no cost to his parishioners. He managed by hook and by crook to raise the money through donations from the rich and diocesan funds. And indeed, um, my granny's uh, relatives in, in, in Tralee had a workshop there and some of the fitments in the church in Kenmare uh, were, 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 were created by, by my ancestors and some of them still, you know, they, they still remain there, although some things were lost at, at the time that the church was re- redesigned following the Vatican Council, they, they removed certain fitments. But the town itself grew and became basically much more prosperous thereafter and now of course it, it's, uh, you go there and it seems a very nice place indeed to live and you, you're inclined to forget all of that history um, still is a very good bookshop where I'm very glad to say you and others and anybody else can buy my book Can Their History and Survival at any time if they wish. It includes by the way the story of, of the proselytizers uh, which has been overlooked. I mean much has been written about the proselytizing in uh, Dingle but there was a very nasty uh, sequence of events. Yeah and ex- explain I suppose what that means to people that wouldn't know. Well t- proselytizing was was inducing Catholics to become Protestant basically when they were in need by offering them food or jobs or schooling in return for conversion and you know, many non, many Protestants didn't approve of it but there was a there was a strong movement for it in its day and it, it, it was you know, objected to obviously by the Catholic bishops who felt that their people would be prevailed upon uh, because out of need uh, and some of the proselytizing was quite obnoxious. And this man in Dromore Castle, who was also a Church of Ireland clergyman, he married a woman who was a particularly strong proselytizer. Uh, and they would, you know, they were putting pressure on children. Uh, and they would give clothes to people, to children, to go to school. But if the children left, they would go after the children, which happened in one notorious case in this instance. And they would get the clothes back. And uh, they would even go to court for them. So, um, O'Sullivan uh, was very much opposed to that. Now, Drumore Castle is still there. It's in private hands. Uh, but th- there were um, meetings held, large meetings, and on one occasion, one of these meetings turned violent, and Mahoney was beaten up. Uh, and he did die prematurely, not immediately, but sometime afterwards collapsed and died, and people put it down to, to, to events then. And indeed, um, in some quarters, uh, O'Sullivan was known uh, uh, as the priest who killed the parson. Uh, but I tell that story in its in its 
bloody and macabre detail in the book because I think it's important to remember that side of our history too. Well, Salvador got on well with most of the Protestant clergy. On his first trip to London, he was he was accompanied by a Church of Ireland clergyman from Kilgarvan, uh, and uh, many of them turned up at his funeral, which was a big event in in Kenmare. So he wasn't he wasn't prejudiced. He wasn't unchristian. He just didn't like uh, proselytizers uh, and uh, fought them tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. Um, just the process of, of uh, writing the book. You mentioned you, you wrote it during COVID, but talking to a lot of, I bring a lot of historical writers on this program. You know, it's not an easy process either. And how was it for you? Um, you know, the research side of things and trying to get access to the different bits of information. Well, it was a labour of love, believe it or not. I mean, I, 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 I love Kerry. I have Kerry ancestors. This was a darn good story, and I mean, it's my twelfth or thirteenth book, and. I, I like telling stories. I'm a journalist and a communicator, and I couldn't resist it. And it just seems so interesting. And to bring to light, I like to shine a light on forgotten things, you know. And the poor of Kenmore might have been forgotten. This story of the workhouse, had it not for been, been for people like Danny Moriarty, Liam Cousins, Anna McKay, Picky, local people who keep the history alive. I don't have, I, I have a kind of a worry about the term local history because I think sometimes it's kind of used in a patronising way as if it wasn't kind of real manly history. But it's, you know, all history is local, as Paddy Gavin pointed out in his own way on a poem. You know, it's all local. Irish history is local. European, it, it all relates to something else. It's, it's in the context of history at large, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in a small thing, you can tell a big story. Sometimes it's easier to tell the story by taking a good example rather than trying to tell the story of all the workhouses. To take but, one but Colum, uh, Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point because I think, you know, history in school, for instance, it, I've got more into history the more I've left school, the more I've concentrated on right, local history in inverted commas because I can relate to it. And then you talk, well, you look at the national context, you look at the international context of what was going on. But it is those stories that brings it to life for me. That's why I think it's important, this book, for like, you know, children, teenagers, if they could get their hands on it, it's so important to know about the area where you come from and, 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 and where it's going as well. But that, 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 that to me, in this book especially, it just opens up the whole, that whole period because you've an interest in it. It's a place you walk by, it's a place you see and you can, you can um, I suppose, empathise with the people as well. Well, I'm glad you said that, yes. I, I, and I was delighted actually to be given an opportunity to address a couple of large classes in the local school in Kenmare. I was invited in and I found that very interesting and to talk to the students there, the very reasons that you say that it gives her a certain reality to the story. Um, no, it was hard work, but I am retired and uh, kept me out of my wife's way. Um, and it's surprising what you can now do, even though, as I say, it was partly written during COVID, the amount of material now online and you can get it for books published before 1900 particularly, you know, if you look hard enough, you can dig them up, so, uh, versions of them from all over the place, the United States, Britain, and Ireland, of course. Um, you can actually get access to many records easier than previously, uh, where you would have had to travel to London to the public record office. Now, in many cases, you can get to these things online and not, uh, you know, frequently without much cost. It, it was disappointing, though, in, I have to say, and I think this is a, I wish somebody would take up this, this issue, the question of the, the records of um, Bowood, of um, the Lansdowne family from the area, which are at Bowood House in Wiltshire. Now, their political papers are in the British Library uh, in in London, and they can be accessed, but these ones in Wiltshire 
um, are not fully catalogued to begin with, so it's not easy to even find things. But the estate charge is a notable £200 sterling plus £40 VAT access for every six-hour day that you want to look at them, plus an administration fee. And that's simply utterly unrealistic, um, especially when you don't know exactly what you want. So you're fishing on a fishing expedition. And I know it's put off at least one other historian who wrote a book. I think when Gerard Lyon wrote his book on the Lansdowne Estates uh, some years ago, he had, he had better access to them. But I, I think, um, you know, some some authority here in the archival area should make an effort to see can something be done about this. I don't know, you know, exactly what the reason is. I doubt they in Bowood House can make an awful lot of money uh, out of kind of general historians looking for information. They might make some out of genealogical historians, but if they don't have a catalogue particularly well to begin with, I'm not even sure how they could use it. So I think there might be another book to be written when all that stuff comes free about the people who were on the Lansdowne Estates in Kerry. You know, it could be yeah. a very interesting story told from a different perspective. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, that they were involved in assisted immigration as well, and, you know, forced immigration, some people would call it, you know. Um, that's another area I think that's that's absolutely fascinating of that time because there's the famine immigration, but then after that, for 50 years after, um, you know, where I live in, in, in near Valencia Island, in the harbour, Belgravia and Farnesia came in within weeks of each other and took thousands of people out of the area. So it's 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 um, it's amazing, that, yes, I suppose, what the county has has taken and Ireland has taken, um, you know, has has had to put up with and has had to endure um, in, in those years. And like you say, I suppose that, that maybe is reflected in our pers- personality today. There's a great book, Tyler Anbinder, who works, uh, he's an American, I think, he certainly works in America, but he wrote a very good book, Five Points, the 19th century New York City neighborhood that invented tap dance, stole elections, became the world's most notorious slum. It's the place, as I said, that Gangs in New York was based. He, he, that was published in New York and London in 2002 and has a lot about the conditions that um, that people went to from Kerry. But he also wrote an article in the American Historical Review explicitly entitled From Famine to Five Points, Lord Lansdowne's Irish Tenants Encounter North America's Most Notorious Slum. And the American Historical Review, I'm sure a library could you know, get it and, and it was in the uh, 2002 edition of that so Anbinder was the man I mentioned earlier who also decided not to pay that money to go to the Lansdowne estate, that it was simply uh, too steep a call. Um, but um, they're, they're both good. If you're interested in the subject, as you are, uh, as you just said, you know, they're both well worth, uh, well worth chasing up. Excellent. Where can people go for your book? Um, because I highly uh, recommend it. Um, so uh, let people know. I know you mentioned it's in, the, in, in, in Kinmare in the bookshops there. Yeah, and uh, well, Hodges Hodges Figures have it in Dublin, and you can go to the publisher, uh, e, which is uh, Eastwood, uh, or, or Wordwell. If you do a search under them, you can Google, and you'll find online uh, the book. And it's it's a very good value. I have to say, I'm amazed that that the publisher was able to produce it for less than twenty euro because there's two sets of plates in it, so lots of interesting photographs of the area I really enjoy finding photographs the National Library I have to say is very helpful in turning up these uh, images when you go looking online at their catalogue they have a lot of it there and you can get copies of their photographs which is 7 euro you have to then ask for permission of course to reproduce them but there's some great I got other great photos there's a very nice chapel at the of the new Temple Old Chapel that was built by Father O'Sullivan out the road from Camare 
a photograph from before 1929 of people going to it. Now, that chapel is still there, but it was reconstructed later in 1960, so it's smaller, actually, than it was when Father O'Sullivan uh, built it. There's photographs of Kinsale and, you know, various sites that I mentioned in the book itself. Um, the old bridge in Kinsale, of course, the fine old bridge that was there before they knocked it down, and perhaps most significantly, the workhouse, such as I said to you, um, is well worth having a look at that picture. Um, on the front cover, um, there are a couple of colorized images of um, Ken Mayer, which were kindly uh, colorized for me um, by, uh, by the man who's written uh, a volume himself on, um, of, of pictures of um, Ireland, around Ireland. That's John Breslin. You'll know his pictures of colorized. So uh, I had, there are various views as to whether you should use colorized pictures in history books. And generally, I'd be conservative about it. But I think on the cover of a book, it's justified. And they do bring it to life. They show Kenmare and all its beauty. One of them across Kenmare Bay, which I do not call Kenmare River, despite the fact that you probably are aware of local controversy about that title. <laughs> and it's on the, I think, it's uh, the, the um, Ordnance Survey called it Kenmare River, even there is. We, we haven't time to go into that. Are yeah, we? no, that's the second time in a few weeks that has come up on air here. So <laughs> we'd have to dedicate another program to that. <laughs> I think there's a book in that, actually. There is. There is. And Colm, I look forward to the next book you bring out because uh, you're quite prolific in the, the wonderful books you bring out. So I'd look forward to if, if, if the, the next time um, you coming on and telling us about that. We're out of time. I could speak to you all morning, but we are out of time. And thanks a million for coming on and telling us uh, all about your, your wonderful book. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Colm Kinney there, and I look forward to speaking to him again in the future. And the book is Kinmare History and Survival. We'll take a break, and after that, we'll have another episode of Lighthouses of Kerry, this time featuring Inish Thierold. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Supporting the Kerry team all the way. Hi, I'm Martina Flynn, Lishin Vaughan, and I would like to wish the Kerry team the best of luck. Please bring the Sam home. Wishing David Clifford and all the Kerry team best of luck from Callum Clifford, England, of the kingdom. Proudly supporting the Kerry football team, this is Radio Kerry. The Carrasaveen Horse and Pony Races takes place this Sunday with first race off at 1.30 sharp. The Dog Show takes place on Friday at 7pm at the Fairfield. Don't miss the Carrasaveen Horse and Pony Races this Sunday. This ad is kindly sponsored by Frank's Corner Carrasaveen, bringing you live music and a DJ in Pulse this August festival weekend. How about you? Are you team breakfast pink lady or feeling peckish pink lady? Bedtime pink lady or after work pink lady? Dessert pink lady or snack time pink lady? But why choose? With Pink Lady Apples, it's always time for a treat. You're as confident in water as on land. You could definitely swim out to that rock. The rock you're being rescued from because you're too tired to swim back. Swim within your depth and stay within your depth. Better safe than sorry. Search Water Safety Ireland for more. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Travelling to Dublin Airport? Then make Flightlink your first choice. Our luxury coaches featuring onboard toilets will whisk you in comfort direct from Killarney to Dublin Airport. With five daily services in each direction, we are sure to have a departure time that suits you. Book online now at flightlink.ie. 
Services commence on July 24th. Every weekday on Radio Kerry, Francis Jones keeps the county entertained on the 11 to 1 Club. Proudly sponsored by MDO Shays Killarney. You can always rely on finding plenty of variety, lots of great features and all your requests looked after. Just like the expert service you'll get at MDO Shays. So whether you're at home, in the car, out and about or in the office, make sure you tune in to the 11 to 1 Club. Now sponsored by MDO Shays Killarney. Building, painting, plumbing or gardening. If you need it, MD's got it. MDOShay.ie The Community Diary on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Kelly's Lawness, Milltown and Rathmore. Local like you. The Radio Kerry Community Diary for Saturday, July 22nd. Evera Vintage Club Field Day takes place this Sunday in Waterville from 11 to 5pm. Steam engine, thrashing, stone crushing, shearing, butter making, blacksmith, machinery, cars, tractors, music and dancing. All proceeds to Skellig Stars. The Community Diary on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Kelly's Lawless Milltown and Rathmore. Local like you. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now it's time to hear another episode of Lighthouses of Kerry. This is the final episode and this is Inish Tirok Lighthouse. This documentary was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Flanked to the southeast by Inish Lawn, Inish Nabro and the Great Blasket lies Inish Tirok and its dramatically situated lighthouse. A natural tunnel connects the higher and lower parts of the island. Being the westernmost of the Blaskets, Inishtirik is the westernmost island of Ireland. The lighthouse was built there in 1870 and is maintained by the Commissioner of Irish Lights. It was automated in 1988. Very few people actually see the lighthouse as it's obscured from the mainland by the peak on the island. In the closing scenes of the movie Ryan's Daughter, the island can be seen in the background as Robert Mitchum and Sarah Miles wait for the bus to take them away. Ulteirucht was um, a huge rock, rises up about 700 feet out of the sea. Actually, there's two uh, islands or two rocks on it. One is called Illa Verde and the other one is called Green Isle. And Green Isle, you, if you look at a picture of that, you clearly see that it was never covered with ice during the Ice Age and soil right all the way up along that um, that rock and it made that rock suitable for uh, gardening it made it suitable for when the keepers were there they had goats so they had milk and they had meat they also had fowl but there's always a, a downside to everything and the downside would be that the goats were doing damage to the um, the, the vegetation to the when they were standing on the soft ground they were knocking it little piece whatever size they were still doing damage and in the early 1800s the British government um, adopted a policy of putting rabbits out onto all islands in the UK there are rabbits on Skellig Michael and on uh, Inishtiris particularly where um, they were never um, contaminated by the um, they never got the myxomatosis so they just bred and bred and bred but now their burrows are doing quite a bit of and also doing a similar damage because they're also going into the burrows and rooting around And but that's the, the, the life of it it was the first rock I went to and when the helicopter left the isolation 
it was one thing I will never forget was the isolation. And I remember thinking to myself, my gosh, though I had known about it and everything else, you have to experience it. I remember I quickly had to um, get, get my wits about me and say, you know, you, you are who you are and you'll do your time and that will be that, you know. But um, once I, I think once I did that there and then, isolation was no longer ever going to be a problem for me. Then again, I was young and uh, I explored continually and um, I, let's say I found my feet. The island is less than a half a mile long and a quarter mile wide and with the two steep precipices of 116 metres and 200 metres joined by a narrow saddle with sea arch underneath 75 metres high. The only flat or accessible places are those hewn out of the rock by craftsmen who stayed on the rock for a number of years, preparing the north and south landings and pathways and steps, and the east landing which is no longer accessible due to rock falls. Preparatory work started on cutting landing steps and access and preparing a level platform for the lighthouse in 1864 and continued apace for the next six years until completed in 1870. A tragic event occurred during construction when one worker fell to his death in 1867 while collecting seagulls' eggs to eat. As well as the lighthouse and ancillary access works, two houses were built to accommodate the lighthouse keepers and their families. CSO records for 1881 show a population of 13 on the rock, including two keepers, their wives and families, and a total population of 10 souls 10 years later in 1891. The 1901 census names the three keepers on the island. James Connell, aged 35, who was head keeper, along with assistants Peter Roddy, 44, and John Connolly, 21. Once the lighthouse was built, a funicular railway similar to the one on the Fastnet Rock and the steepest in Europe was built to transport equipment. Keepers and their entire families were also often transferred from island station to island station without ever going ashore onto the mainland. In 1896, the keepers requested that the station be made relieving, that is, no permanent continuous habitation but habitation by keepers only, principal keeper and two assistant keepers on alternating terms of duty, with relieving alternate crew. The commissioners for Irish Lights agreed to their request, and they and their families were transferred to new quarters in Valencia, and a terrace of eight new houses were built in 1900, behind Knightstown to house the keepers of both Skelligs and Tirot, and their families moved in in 1901. Thereafter, their families remained on Valencia, while the keepers went separately to keep the light for their two to three week tours of duty. Usually, each man was at the lighthouse for six weeks at a time, and then on leave for two. On island and remote headland lighthouses like this, they might see no one but other keepers and the crew of the relief boat during that period. Separation from their families was difficult at times. Because of the remoteness of lighthouses, like the one on Inish Tirkt, it could be lonely. Lighthouse historian Gerald Butler was a lighthouse keeper whose family were steeped in the tradition. I was born into it. My parents and my grandparents were all lightkeepers. So um, it was just inevitable that I was going to follow on in their footsteps, and I did. And you'd, you'd want to be very good in your own company, and that's really the main ingredient if you're at peace within, you're made. And strangely enough, it's not everybody uh, can do that. You would think that it's a sedate life, it's um, easy enough and all that, but when you're challenged with isolation, um, it can speak a different language to you, if you like, you know. 
Well, <clears throat> isolation would affect... Um, it, it depends on the person. It always depends on the person. So that's what made it good for some people, not for others. And I did work with a chap who uh, found isolation very difficult. And it just meant that um, he was never able to, if you like to use the word, detach himself from the shore. So if you could do that, fine, you were where you were. But he, he would be sitting there in the kitchen and his mind was always... Um, stuck back ashore, he was doing, he was somewhere else, and you didn't have any company. For that reason, time dragged with the likes of uh, that chap. And lovely man and all that, but that's just the way it was. Even my own twin brother, he uh, couldn't handle isolation either. He needed interaction with people. So his time was difficult, and he found better peace when he when he left it. And that's what you had to do. You had to leave it if you if you weren't able for it, you know. But most people were able for it. But that said, you know. Well, some people did find them, but I, I you know, it depended on the individual. Like you know, if you sat down and watched television, you could do. Some people did that, and but I, I prefer to mess around in the workshop, you know. It was a big workshop there uh, attached to every lighthouse and there were plenty of tools there and they supplied uh, the, the powers that be then in Dublin supplied raw material like uh, uh, bits of iron or brass or copper to shape things and make things if you, if you felt that, that inclined, you know. The late Pat O'Shea from Valinche Island was in the lighthouse service for 40 years starting in 1955. Inishtirup, that's one of the Blasket Islands, the western island of the, of the Blaskets. There were always, there were always uh, three, three men together. And, uh, uh, well, the, the principal keeper, he was one called uh, Keenan, God rest him, he's dead now. Ned Keenan, he was from Cork, and uh, he'd stay up with you the first night and see, to see that you knew what you were responsible for. And he, he was... Uh, he was very helpful. I have to say that about him. And then the, you had to be—you were responsible for the the landing equipment, the landing itself. You had to be, be very careful of that uh, to to wash it, and you didn't allow any weeds to grow on it, you know. And that was a job that was done by the the three crew together, with, uh, and they watched out for each other, you know. But um, the, some of the places had aerial hoists, then you know that we used. Uh, that meant uh, a cable going across the cave and uh, a, a, a vertical hawser going down then, a steel hawser, and that picked up the cargo, whether even timber or cement or gravel, if they were putting up, uh, kind of out improvements or modern, trying to modernise old buildings. Every shovel of gravel and, uh, and sand required had to be brought out and landed in that fashion. Well, when they were electrified, they were electrified in the 60s, in the late 60s and the, that uh, was that meant that there was power there were powers, a small powerhouse was erected in, 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 in most of the, of, the, of the lighthouses. The late Aidan Walsh was also a lighthouse keeper for many years. My name is Aidan Walsh I was 18 years lightkeeper, and since 98 to the present day, I've been the attendant of Inish Tear at Lighthouse in the Western Island of the Baskets and assistant attendant on the Skellies. When my time went month on, month off, but 
prior to that some years previously it was six weeks on two weeks off and boat reliefs helicopter reliefs didn't come in until about 1970 prior to that it was boat relief and your six weeks on could actually extend to 10, 12 weeks that must have been extremely difficult on, on, on uh, families and on, on shore wives raising children father not about decisions to be made no great communications between lighthouses and shore bases unreliable telephone radios rather garbled so you'd have you know I mean think back and they were a hell of a lot tougher than anyone could have possibly imagined even though uh, you were not a tradesman you were a man of many trades in other words if something went wrong there was just you so um, you understood how to fix anything and everything in the light you were able to keep that light going no matter what and um, then you were able to repair a generator to a certain degree um, you would do it if you had to um, you'd do domestic work in the house if a window came a board crashed in which I'm, I'm dreaming of there but if something like that happened you were the person who had to go and shore that up um, or drinking water you had to maintain that um, then you had to be able to do book work uh, there was a lot of record keeping we used to do a lot of weather recording and um, you were doing this kind of stuff all the time uh, we were doing a lot of radio work then because uh, laterally, well not laterally but I suppose from after the second world war period on uh, radios uh, became the norm out on these lighthouses so everybody was not was um, certified to speak in them and uh, you were doing that as well so it was a pile of activities and then your hobby work you were kept um, if you had time which you had lessons of it you were extremely creative I worked with some um, artists who were so outstanding even as I think of them today I, I think in awe of them, you know. You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Radio Kerry and Corcoran's Furniture and Carpets would like to help you enjoy the most comfortable way to watch the All Ireland final at home. Whether it's a relaxed, easy game or another edge-of-the-seat encounter, tune in to Kerry's Full Breakfast from Monday for your chance to win a €500 Euro voucher towards the couch of your All-Ireland dreams. Brought to you in association with Corcoran's Furniture and Carpets. For every room in your home. Corcoran'sFurniture.ie Hi folks, John here from Reins Peugeot at Moore. After a short career break, I'm back with fantastic offers for 232. The full range of Peugeot cars and commercials are now available for immediate delivery. And for a limited time, get five years warranty, three years servicing, three years roadside assistance, one year's road tax, and low-cost finance on all 232 passenger cars. Now that's some deal. So don't pass the road. Call to Reins Peugeot at more today. The annual West Kerry Agricultural Show will take place at the Mark Grounds Dingle this Sunday, July 23rd at 1pm. Classes for cattle, horses, ponies and sheep with a prize fund of €20,000 up for grabs. Plus arts and crafts, cookery, sheepdog trials, dog show, best dress competition, music and lots more. Come along and enjoy the fun at the Mark Grounds Dingle this Sunday. 
This ad is kindly sponsored by Dairy Master, delivering quality, reliability, efficiency, and service to dairy farmers worldwide. Supporting the Kerry team all the way. Sandra Clancy from Boniara. Best looks the ladies team on the weekend from everyone in my band, Ladies J. My favourite player is Louise Nevi Hertig because she coached me at the crossover camp and she's really good. And I love to play for Kerry someday. Come on, Kerry. Me too. <laughs> Proudly supporting the Kerry football team. This is Radio Kerry. McKenna's of Listowel has unbelievable value on a wide range of summer goods, from patio furniture to barbecues and all outdoor living products. Huge clearance on so many summer must-haves. So call in for the massive summer sale. Now on at McKenna's, your local top line and expert store. McKenna's of Listowel. Every weekday, Radio Kerry Sports News keeps you up to date on local, national and international sporting events. Brought to you in association with Solar Bio, the solar panel specialists. For all the fixtures, previews and latest reports from the world of sport, don't miss Radio Kerry Sports News. Weekdays from 8am to 6pm. Brought to you in association with Solar Bio. Arrange your free solar power consultation today. Solarbio.ie. You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Well, the the, the primary uh, duty of a lighthouse keeper was to maintain the equipment, the light, uh, and the fog signal. Fog signals are very important because the. the the fog, when the fog came in, it it, it blanked, blacked out and they couldn't see any light. And uh, you had to be responsible to get a fog on going, whatever time it was. There were different types of, of fog sounds, like the, uh, the, the some of them were air compressed, compressed air, and uh, the air passed through jazz, uh, funnels in and that made a sound. And others were explosives, like tonite, small tonite, about three or four inches long and that was you inserted a detonator into that and uh, hoisted up above, above the lighthouse and uh, it made a sound like they were warning the ships that they were approaching a rock or a sandbank or something that that that, that, does it, that was it mainly then you had to make, keep the place uh, you know speak and span because there was nobody else going to do it for you we did four hour watches an eight hour day like he it uh, four hours of daylight and four hours of night time that made a day and uh, uh, we did four weeks of duty at the time where once ships brought supplies now access is only by helicopter the most westerly lighthouse in Europe it has a treacherous surrounding area one of the hardest helicopter pads to land on due to the updrafts that can suddenly occur and knock the helicopter off course well by both for the first uh, for the first four or five years I suppose the boat around here was the the Nabro and she she was there before I had one trip in her I think and then she was uh, taken out of employment and a bigger one more modern vessel put in the Valonia was the next boat that was in, in my time I travelled mainly in her pretty nerve wracking you know and for the first time because some of the pilots, some of the pilots were, 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 were easy men, you know, they, they didn't take any notes of you, but some more of them then were smart Alex, like, they'd start wavering with the, with, you know, you'd go over the side, and mind you, they'd shout back at you, don't fall out anyway, you know, well, um, 
Castletown beer was was the the base for Cork and Kerry on the border, like there were five or six lighthouses there, and they were they'd all have to uh, meet up and have be ready to, to go on board whenever they called. They called the time for we were going to the the Tirek or the Skelligs or Bull Rock, whatever they were, the point was the boss that day. The landing on Inish Tirek and landing on and off of these rocks was uh, quite challenging because uh, you had to be able to be landed on the rock when landing conditions were unsuitable. So you were winched up out of the cutter uh, on a, on a, on a, by a derrick on a seat. And the seat was just a circular uh, disc of timber with a rope passing through the centre. So you, you sat on that, held onto the rope, and you were winched up out of the boat. And then going back, you were landed about 50 feet up over the water. Going back then, you were picked up off this platform, swung out over the water, and you were lowered down by uh, the lightkeepers. And you were, they keep you just above the highest wave so that the cutter was still lying off. Now, when the coxswain got it clear in his mind, he would tell the crew when to row, and they would arrive down in the truck. Up they'd come in a swell, grab the person going ashore, and um, they would just fall back into the arms of the boatman. And a parent, back in the early days, or as they say nowadays, back in the day, they would have a child on their lap doing that. So the child would be holding on as well, and then when they were told to fall back, they fell back. The one thing I never knew, and I'd known about this now all my life, but this piece I didn't. There's some few years ago, I was in uh, the university in Cork and the lady in the uh, library, she gave me a letter that was written into the university a long, long time ago. I'm not sure when. But this letter was describing what it was like for a parent or parents who had an infant on the rock. Now, an infant would be something like a newborn baby, but maybe a bit hardier, but but not able to sit on the seat, not able to hold on. You can't tie them onto you because if you fall, you could crush them. If um, you fell into the sea with them tied onto you, you're only going to have your head out of the water, so they would be drowned. So the only way of doing it was to wrap the child in blankets and clothing and coats and even oilskins, whatever they could, and tie it with ropes, and then get as close to the landing as possible and when the cutter would come in as close as it could uh, they would throw the child which was um, like a rugby ball if you like the boatmen would grab it and if they failed to grab it the child may fall in, or the infant may fall into the boat or else the infant may fall into the water if it fell into the boat it was so well padded if it fell into the water, it was still so well padded that it was going to be floating for quite a while. So it would be easy for the boatmen or the, yeah, the crew members to fish that child out of the water. And um, we think that's bizarre, but you know, we look at it from our own seat, if you like, which is um, we're, we're driving cars to work. We're in the absolute um, ultimate of luxury in every respect. But, and it's difficult for us to try and imagine what life was like back then. We had a few accidents. I, uh, 
I broke two vertebrae there myself. Uh, uh, people fell, thought that I fell off the rock, but I, I didn't. I I, um, I was on a two-step, a two-step ladder, isn't very it's about about, about, about two, three feet at most, and uh, but I I mis misfooted it, and uh, I came down on 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 a, on a railing, an iron railing, and uh, I uh, broke got two vertebrae broken and I had to be brought ashore in the lifeboat and uh, shipped off to a hospital, went to a hospital in a taxi with the Monster Coors and Tralee, but it, they made a great job there for me. Because of the remote location of the Tiracht, the wildlife in the area is something to behold. I think about seven years ago, a pod of orca whales are finished here and there were six of them and as they were passing by but Initially attracted my attention was like as I came out the door I saw all the seabirds leave the surface of the water. I was going, What's going on here? And next thing I was in the distance zone, but two quarters of a mile away I saw the the uh, tarsal fins. And looking at those I said that kind of a droopy some of those. There's only one whale has a droopy dorsal fin, that's the arc. And as they came closer, they were arcus. And the six of them came quite close, all between about hundred metres from the shore, and one of them did a total breach which was awesome. So I made a phone call to some friends of mine and one of my mates, he said to me, Aidan, you're, you're high, what's up? So I was telling him. And less than a week later, three of them went up the, the lean Cork, right up to the city. And my mate is on the ferry across from Passage to Carrigalow and Cork. And they had to stop the ferry in Cork to lower the whales up and down. It was a, it was a significant part of it, yeah, the, the, the isolation, you know. I mean, we, we had a lot of we had a lot of uh, visitors, uh, like nature visitors, uh, on the on the on the tier, you know, because it's 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 uh, saturated with birds, so different types of birds. They, they breed there and they they nest there. Uh, they for the whole summer, and there there are hundreds and thousands of certain like the kittiwakes that we. Say a thousand to them there, and um, these were very interesting people. They were ornithologists, doctors, medical doctors. We had a medical doctor there for a week, for a week, one time, and that was his. Uh, we didn't see very much of him because he was away. He was up at the top, and he met, met nearly every bird that was there. From 1901, the CSO records show a consistent number of tree keepers on the rock until 1988 when the lighthouse went automatic. Of these keepers, one fell to his death while trying to round up some of the island goats for milking. And one other keeper broke both his arms and leg in a fall, but lived to resume his former job as keeper. The lighthouse was automated in 1988 and to this day stands as testament to the lighthouse keepers and their families who kept the light and the countless lives that were saved as a result. It's a way of life that's gone. But, I mean, that's, that's, things move on. You've got to deal with it. But uh, there were great times, some wonderful characters, great friends made. Yeah, there you have it. And I want to thank all the contributors to that uh, documentary series on the Lighthouses of Kerry, produced by Connie Broderick and I. And uh, it was a real pleasure to produce that because we have some wonderful lighthouses with an amazing 
history um, associated with them and the great people that have been involved in them down through the years or involved with them down through the years and they should be celebrated. So thanks to everyone and I hope you enjoyed that series. Now we'll take a break with more after these. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. This Tuesday, Francis will be all buckled up as he's teaming up with Kelleher's Toyota Tralee for a new monthly feature called In the Driving Seat. He'll be joined in studio by a guest to discuss lots of motoring topics and give you some simple tips on looking after your car. In the Driving Seat, this Tuesday on the 11 to 1 Club, brought to you in association with Kelleher's Garage Tralee, Kerry's Toyota dealer with over 100 cars in stock. Kelleher's, putting you in the driving seat. Week 30 of Radio Kerry's Radio Bingo starts this Monday, so make sure you are playing on the correct book. Available now in participating stores. There's a daily prize of €400, Euro, and next Friday's jackpot is a massive €28,200. Euro. When you play Radio Bingo on Radio Kerry, you'll be supporting Recovery Haven, Kerry Hospice, Kerry Cancer Support Group and Comfort for Chemo Kerry. For more, visit radiokerry.ie forward slash bingo. Team Satira will be rocking this summer with great live music. Monday, headlines on August 26th. And the Shimsa sessions in the courtyard are full of emerging artists like Jem Xavier, Queenless Kings, Questionable Plays, Faux Mystic, Uncade Glunella and Lauren Griffin. Plus trad legends Andy Irvine and Donal Lunny play in September. Bookings at Shimsatira.com. Don't miss Burns Euro Show Fun Fair's annual Carnival Week. Monday, July 24th to Saturday 29th. Only at Fair Hill Killarney. Trophies, prizes and lots of fun. Entries from 6pm and judging from 6.30pm. For all the latest info, check out euroshow.ie. Supporting the Kerry team all the way. Gemma from Aberdonian, best luck to the kingdom. Best of luck to the Kerry team. Hope they win. Up Kerry. Hello, my name is Brian Hurley. I play football for Muscal. My favourite player is Shane Sheik because he's the best free taker. Up Proudly supporting the Kerry football team. This is Radio Kerry. Are you looking for some exciting adventures this summer? On Kerry's Full Breakfast, we've teamed up with Falta Ireland to offer you the chance to win €100 each day to help you experience the best daycation ever. For inspiration on planning the best daycation and experience the feeling of a holiday all in one day, see discoverireland.ie. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now, so we're almost out of time. Where does the time go? But um, next Saturday, it's the final Saturday of the month, but it's not going to be Frank Lewis. You're going to have to put up with me for another programme, and Frank will be doing the following Saturday, because if there's one thing that is always a constant in the lives of Kerry people of all generations, it's Kerry football and pride in the green and gold jersey. So next weekend will be no different as the county gets behind our Kerry team, heading for an All-Ireland to Croke Park, and the ladies' team as they face into an All-Ireland semi final. So join me next Saturday morning from 9 to 11 for a special All-Ireland Weekend Saturday Supplement. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly, Hogan's Funeral Home Tralee. It promises to be a great one. All will be revealed in the near future, so stay tuned for that. It's next Saturday morning. It's going to be a belter. Now, that's all we have time for on the programme this morning. Thanks to everyone who contributed. Thanks to you for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me next Saturday. 
Francis is on the way, so keep it here on Radio Kerry. Until I talk to you next week, look after yourself and take care. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Mom, I'm Ice cream. Miss you freshen. In this Saturday's Irish Examiner, pick up your free wall chart of handy phrases for summer Osgoelga as we celebrate the Irish language in Weekend Magazine. There's Cleona Niculi and Colin Barade on the impact of The Quiet Girl, Gaelin's weekly online Zoom courses, Esther McCarthy's Gale Talked Memories, and a guide to Irish language holidays. Buy Saturday's Irish Examiner in store or subscribe at irishexaminer.com. Radio Kerry, proud supporters of the Kerry team and this year's All Ireland Final. Togan Bohrshir, the Korkarina, are clowning out the Dangani Hush. Bohrkin Schlege Dorfin, Ilanra the Mlaske, the Gemurga Erdikle, or Nidhta Hilura Aun in Onodan Laskade, Dondeskielte Gohana Agasweirkne, Seher Nanuder Harkiet Blien, Finchkielte Shanachas Agas Knahel Nanini, Hobbles Kapehe Achniemi in Arund, Tele Olish or Heritage Ireland Stad IE. Supporting the Kerry team all the way. I'd like to say the best luck to the lads from the Canterbury's Club. Stephen O'Brien would be my favourite player. Good luck, Kerry. You'll win all right. Hi, my name is Michaela and I'm from Chile and I want to wish the Kerry team good luck in the match. Kerry, 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 oh Kerry. Proudly supporting the Kerry football team. This is Radio Kerry. Harvey Norman is your home of the big screen. Get ready for the big game with LG. Catch all the action in stunning 4K with the 55-inch LG OLED Smart TV. Now 2199. Feel the energy of the crowd with this LG Cinematic Soundbar. Now 1199. Or buy both for 2698 and save 700 euro. With interest-free finance terms available and our best prices guaranteed. Harvey Norman, your home of the big screen. Lane Brothers Home Store are holding their biggest summer sale yet with massive discounts across all departments. This 50% off orthopedic double mattresses, 30% off recliner sofas, 30% off solid oak dining furniture and many more bargains in store. Don't miss the huge summer sale at Lane Brothers Home Store, the Horan Centre Trilly. Sale must end soon. Supporting the Kerry team all the way. My name is Bridget Moriarty and I wish the Kerry team all the luck in the world and when they got the score the last day I cried we have to have faith in them and tell them go for it lads go for it come on kingdom proudly supporting the Kerry football team this is Radio Kerry Join Donald Barry this Monday evening for a Terrace Talk All-Ireland Final Special live from the Mill Bar and Brasserie at the Heights Hotel Killarney He'll be joined by Kerry GA supporters, young and old, have plenty of debate and chat on Kerry's greatest score against Dublin, plus some live music. So tune in this Monday evening from 6pm, or even come along to a Terrace Talk All-Ireland special, live from the Mill Bar and Brasserie at the Heights Hotel Killarney, where their dedicated team always look after yours, with great food, served by great people, seven days a week. Missed an episode of your favourite Radio Kerry show? Listen back to the Saturday Supplement on the podcast section of our website. You won't miss a thing with RadioKerry.ie. Broadcasting on 96 to 98 FM, online and on our app, this is Radio Kerry News. Good morning, it's 11 o'clock, I'm Circa Burke.
The security allowance afforded to TDs and senators should be extended to councillors without delay. So says Senator Mary Siri Kearney following an attack on a councillor's home in Dublin this week. A rock with a note to stop supporting refugees was thrown through the window of Councillor Hugh Lewis's house. Senator Siri Kearney says there needs to be a sense of urgency in getting security funding for councillors. If there was any delays or any putting it off till September, actually the decision needs to be made now and that's what I'm calling for, to accelerate that decision because this week's occurrence is bound to uh, to, to maybe those who are thinking of running for election next year, uh, people who are thinking of coming into public life, we need them to have the security that they're going to be supported. The government needs to stop taking